Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I am Charlotte Kasseragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to academic and writer Will Scheibel who has written a book on Gene Tierney, star of Hollywood's home front. Tierney is a star of many classic films including Leave Her to Heaven, The Ghost and Mrs Muir and Laura but Will uses uh, his study to go behind the scenes of the Hollywood star-making machine and publicity surrounding celebrity, as well as the performances and the films themselves. Uh, it's a really interesting book, very deep, very uh, very detailed, and it, it really uh, it really shines a light not just on the individual of Gene Tierney, but I think a lot of people will enjoy it if they're interested in that period at all. If you enjoy the episode, please remember to like and subscribe. You can also follow me on Twitter at Dr. John. D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. Before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. I'm, I'm doing well. Yeah, it's it's a, a snowy day in Syracuse, New York. So, um, you know, pretty, pretty typical for, for February. It took a while for winter to kick in, but it's finally here. How about yourself? Right. So Syracuse, where, what, what's that like? How, how close are you to sort of uh, New York City, Manhattan? It's about four hours from the city. Um, right. Uh, so it's pretty much like central New York. Right, right. New York State. Because Yeah, I never think when you say Syracuse, New York, I'm thinking, oh, well, that must be just outside the city. But obviously, <laughs> obviously not. 
it's the borough that nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> no. And is it quite, about is it quite a rural area? Um, not not quite rural. I mean, there there are rural areas around Syracuse, um, but it's it's a it's a mid sized city. Um, the universities here, uh, Syracuse University, which is where I work. Um, uh, the Upstate Hospital is here, so yeah, it's it's a fairly urban campus. How uh, have you uh, have you been there long or? Uh, so yeah, I started in 2015. So I guess now um, I'm no longer, uh, you know, sort of a new Sy- Syracusean, but um, it definitely it definitely feels like home. Yeah, I, I started in fall of 2015, about a year after I defended my dissertation. Right, right. And and so um, where did you do your dissertation? Um, I was a PhD student at Indiana University in Bloomington. And um, was there for about uh, seven years and then started on the tenure track at Syracuse University in 2015. And um, I'm going up for full professor this year. So I, I, yeah, I'm definitely kind of planting my feet firmly on the ground. Well, Well, best of luck with that. Thanks. And so your academic work is, is, uh, you know, I could tell from the, from reading your book, um, your approach, your approaching film from an academic point of view. How did you, how did you sort of get into that as a, as a sort of study path? Um, I was a film studies and journalism double major in college um, at the University of Iowa. And at, at first I, I thought I wanted to be like a, a film reviewer, you know, a, a sort of popular film critic. And the more I was taking the um, film history classes and um, film analysis classes at Iowa for, for my second major, the more I got interested in that kind of um, writing about films sort of long essays and, and research. Um, and so I thought, you know, I might want to stick with this uh, longer. So, um, yeah, I've always been a cinephile, um, like a dyed in the wool cinephile since I was a kid. So, you know, thinking about movies was in some ways not new. It was just like a, a sort of formalized version of what I was already doing in my like non-academic life of just, you know, watching movies, collecting movies, reading about movies. Um, and uh, so I, I don't see like a, a clear separation in some ways between my academic life and my um, personal life. The The administrative stuff is definitely academic, not personal, <laughs> but the, um, the, the sort of, you know, film history and film analysis stuff is, is what I, you know, enjoy thinking about anyway. So I thought, you know, I, I might want to stick with this and, um, uh, went to grad school at, uh, Indiana university, which has a, um, really great film history program. And, you know, the rest, I guess is, is, uh, is history. <laughs> <laughs> and when you, uh, when you sort of started to become a cinephile as a kid what were the sort of films that you were were inspiring you what what were what were the things which are you know getting you excited yeah so i was um i was a teenager in like the late 90s early 2000s and so there were some exciting movies that were you know new at that at that time um and i remember there was sort of a moment in the in the in the late 90s for neo noir you know movies like memento and mm. um, uh, la confidential and this sort of revival of of film noir that films that were very self-conscious about 
the history of, of film noir. And so those movies led me back to um, noir from the, the 40s and 50s. And so I, I really got into classic Hollywood film vis-a-vis film noir and, and certain directors that were associated with um, noir and horror and um, uh, melodrama. And so my cinephilia was very much tied to um, a kind of mid-century classic Hollywood genre filmmaking and um, director-driven filmmaking. And usually, you know, films featuring like a lot of those films from that period, um, dynamic star personalities. So, you know, when thinking about what kind of research do I want to do for the long haul in grad school, I thought, um, you know, go back to the the material that that I've always been interested in, which is um, uh, that period, and and it seemed like a a period that would have lots of avenues to explore historically. So, but I mean, I've always I've, I like films from all over the world. I like contemporary films, um, art films, experimental films, documentary. But in terms of the the sort of movies that I enjoy writing about, um, tend to be popular narrative films from the United States. Mm, mm. I, I mean, yeah, film noir, I think, I remember that period uh, you're speaking of so well, you know, the, the sort of the usual suspects came out. Uh, yeah, out, yeah. Out then, and, and there were lots of sort of, I think a little bit inspired by Tarantino, sort of, I mean, I'm not necessarily inspired by, but perhaps maybe they just were able to get funding. I'm thinking sort of something like Red Rock West with mm-hmm, Nicolas Cage, mm-hmm. the John Barwell. Yeah. Which, um, which I don't think is really inspired by Tarantino or, you know, I think he's doing his own thing. But yeah. I'm absolutely certain when they went into the meeting, they said it, it'll be like Reservoir Dogs, but, you know, in right. Texas. Exactly. Yeah. It seemed like there was this sort of perfect storm of things happening. It was that uh, American independent cinema of the 90s that was gravitating towards crime films or films that were very, you know, clever and and self-conscious about their own knowledge of film history. Uh, The Coen Brothers films are like that too, I think. Um, uh, And then there was the uh, uh, reprinting of old detective novels as well. Vintage uh, uh, was publishing, republishing, you know, Dashiell Hammett and, and James M. Cain. And Jim Thompson was sort of a a figure who was in the in the shadow, if I can use a, a noir metaphor, in the shadow of of uh, Hammett and Kane and and Chandler. But in the eighties uh, and nineties, there was this big revival of interest in in Jim Thompson's work. Um, so I think a lot of those uh, films that were coming out were direct adaptations of of his work that was suddenly being, you know, rediscovered. Oh man, I used to buy those Jim Thompson. In, I mean, I was in England at the time. I was in Liverpool at the time, and I'd buy the. the you could only really get imports because uh, I don't think there was any British printing of his books. Picador, I think, did like a four novel omnibus. But okay. if you wanted anything outside of the most popular, you know, The Getaway or Killer Inside Me, you had to sort of find these, and they were. They were like 20, 25 pounds, which at the time was a lot for a for a paperback, essentially. Mm-hmm. But uh, I must have uh, I must have spent a lot of student loans on on those books. <laughs> <laughs> so this leads you leads us to um, Jean Tierney, who is mm-hmm. uh, the oh, am I mispronouncing her name? Jean Tierney. Jean Tierney. Yep, you're correct. Yeah. 
who is uh, one of those stars. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm wondering uh, how famous she is in America mm -hmm. uh, compared to because I know her and I know her. I know Laura and mm -hmm. I've seen her in the um, Douglas Sirk films. Um, but I, she's not someone on the sort of Rita Hayworth or Lauren McCall mm. scale of fame. But maybe that's because of my European perspective. How how is it in uh, on your side of the pond? No, <clears throat> I, I think that's I think that's fairly similar to um, uh, how she would be uh, remembered. I, I guess at, at the present in the United States, um, she, and that's partly why I want to write about her. Is she she isn't. Um, quite as canonical a star as say Rita Hayworth or uh, Barbara Stanwyck or Joan Crawford or Betty Davis, um, Catherine Hepburn, you know, these stars that we associate with what Richard Dyer calls the independent woman type, um, uh, you know, both on and off the screen, their, their star persona was, um, you know, larger than life, um, uh, really powerful female uh, characters and, and, and personalities. And uh, there was a, um, for a long time, I think it's starting to change now, for a long time, there was this perception that Jean Tierney was a weak actress um, and, uh, you know, wasn't in the same league as those other names that I mentioned from about the same period. Um, but she is, her, her face and her image um, is ubiquitous in the kind of cultural memory of classical Hollywood. So she's she's not thought of as, you know, one of the greatest actresses of that generation, but she is a, a, a very familiar face. And part of that is because of the enormous popularity of Laura, um, not only when it was first released, but it's in its afterlife. It had a lot of play on television. Um, and it's been a, a an intertextual site. There have been so many films and TV shows that have paid homage to Laura and referenced Laura, and that the Laura portrait that is so central to that story um, has circulated in a way that has given um, a kind of prolonged visibility to Jean Tierney. So people people know her from that period. They know the name. They know the face. They identify her with film noir. Um, as you said, she uh, was in a number of, of 20th Century Fox noir films from the period, um, but they don't really know um, either. It's either they don't really know too much about her or they they do and they sort of say, oh, well, she was like a kind of second string um, classic Hollywood uh, uh, figure. Now there are classic Hollywood fans who like myself, you know, would totally disagree with that. And so I thought, well, yeah. that's interesting that there's this kind of tension between the received wisdom about Jean Tierney and then for, you know, people who are really interested in classical Hollywood, that she remains this kind of favorite. And so I thought, I wonder, you know, how was she received at um, at the time that Laura and Leave Her to Heaven and The Ghost and Mrs. Muir were coming out? And so in thinking about um, her in that historical context of the 1940s, um, what was interesting to me is that her films were hugely popular. Um, Laura was a hit. Leave Her to Heaven was an even bigger hit. Dragon Wick. Um, and uh, she was all over the fan magazines. Um, 20th Century Fox had this big buildup for her as, um, you know, one of their, uh, their, their great new discoveries of the early 1940s. Uh, Daryl F. Zanuck famously called her the most beautiful woman in movie history. Um, so I thought it's interesting that people did respond to her films. And so I was trying to think about, you know, why that is and what 
uh, was significant about her in the context of the 1940s that um, may have been forgotten over time, where people remember the Laura portrait and think like, oh, she was this very sort of passive star and you know, better known for her beauty than her talent is kind of the, the refrain that you, you sometimes hear. Um, but I, it's interesting that Laura, the film, is all about disputing that very myth. It's it's about kind of deconstructing that image of the 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 woman who is the um, object of, of of a man's possession. And in the case of Laura, it's like three different men that are sort of vying for control over her. Um, and so, trying to kind of work backwards from from that and to figure out like, well. You know, how does that square with um, uh, her popularity in the 1940s? In the 1940s, she was seen as this like active participant in um, Hollywood promoting the the war effort and after World War II, very much invested in playing these ordinary women. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's the thing that I found really interesting about the book is your your it's not like a straight biography it's more mm -hmm. uh, about a, an anatomy of star stardom and the fact that it isn't this um it isn't Kath um i was gonna say kathleen turner then <laughs> kathleen <laughs> or um or or uh you know in ingrid bergman or someone like that mm -hmm. who who as you know you you would say okay they're absolutely name recognition face recognition internationally um, she's more of a, I don't know who I would put in that second string because it's difficult. Because, uh, I mean, I think of people like, say, Gloria Graham or, or maybe mm -hmm. um, Miriam Hopkins. But then I think, well, Miriam Hopkins was massive in her time. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. Um, but you you sort of, you use her case as a way of sort of seeing how Hollywood builds up these these stars and how they're put together and then mm -hmm. how their own personal lives or how their own performances can sort of uh, not necessarily fit the mold and not mm -hmm. necessarily consistently achieve, you know, uh, uh, what those other people have achieved, even though, as you say, you know, uh, she, she kind of had uh, a lot of powerful people um, trying to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, because I worked really hard to make that uh, that clear. So I'm glad that 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 came through in the book. But yeah, I was interested in just that the kind of um, complicated and dynamic machinery of, of star making and, um, you know, what happens when um, the, the star narrative is is no longer capable of being tightly controlled by um, the studio system and what happens when um, star performances may be in tension with um, the conception of the star that the that the studio had and how there are these kind of competing voices like one of the interesting things about writing on Laura was how many different people had a different sense of who Laura was in the making of the film. And of course, that's literally what the film is about. Um, and then Jean Tierney has her own conception of, of the character. But um, uh, the later part of her career, her career, she was you know, hugely popular in the middle of the 1940s. And then by the early 1950s, she was making film after film. She was more active than ever before. And then immediately she kind of disappears in 1954, 1955. She disappears from the public eye. And then doesn't come back until the late 1950s when 
um, it's revealed that she was undergoing treatment for um, psychiatric disorders, what now likely would be classified as um, a bipolar disorder. And this was happening while she was going in and out of um, psychiatric institutions. The press was covering this and people were kind of watching it firsthand, which is somewhat unusual for that time um, because a lot of the stars who faced um who were who were who were dealing with mental health issues uh, that was revealed after the fact you know people would sort of read back on like oh wow that's interesting that you know so and so was was going through that or it was like a, a star like Francis Farmer who um didn't have the the star power of Jean Tierney so she wasn't kind of an A-list star so Jean Tierney is unique in that way where she was outspoken about what she was going through and people were reading about this as it was happening. At one point, she reemerged from um, uh, a psychiatric care to work as a sales lady in a, in a Topeka clothing store in Topeka, Kansas. Um, mm. So I thought that was interesting and that and that was unique. And that was you know something that obviously the studio you know didn't have control over. So how the studio attempted to respond to that. I found very interesting in trying to say, well, oh, you know, this is uh, Gene Tierney's big comeback. We'll sort of turn this into a comeback narrative, which is mm. eliding the very problem, uh, which is the, the mental health uh, concerns and resources to support people with mental illness. Um, that is the one thing they weren't really talking about. It's like, oh, she was just you know, um, kind of heartbroken over her relationships that had uh, um, dissolved by this point and, um, uh, you know, framing it more as a, a, a woman with a broken heart who just had to kind of power through um, by continuing to work as opposed to dealing with the systemic issue of, of mental health. Yeah, and there's got to be a sort of end point to that narrative, a happy ending, which is not necessarily, well, as you say, it might be part of the problem, having that pressure towards a, a happy, a perceived happy ending. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, I guess the 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 happy ending in, in some ways is that her films still uh, not all of them, but, you know, the, the really popular ones from the 1940s continue to circulate on classic movie channels um, on DVD and Blu-ray. And there is a you know, she's a she's a, a beloved figure, albeit maybe within a more kind of niche audience of of cinephiles and, and classic movie buffs. Um, there's, you know, social media pages dedicated to her. So, you know, people, um, uh, you know, do recognize that she was a, an important figure um, at that time. And, and people still love Laura and love Lieber to Heaven. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, um, it's it's a shame that in some ways the, the sort of like um, the the Gene Tierney, the the tragic victim, I think, in, has eclipsed a lot of um, her career and you know, as I tried to argue in the book, it's that's sort of a different way of talking about her in passive terms. Like on the one hand, she's the most beautiful woman in movie history who isn't very talented, but is beautiful to look at. And then on the other hand, she's this, you know, poor, uh, broken hearted woman who just couldn't didn't have the strength to, you know, carry on under the um trying conditions of her personal life and was just exhausted and and so but nevertheless you know uh, has the the sort of fighting spirit to kind of continue on so both of those are two different ways of thinking about her in very passive terms and so i wanted to try to recuperate some kind of agency or subjectivity there within the limited ways that i could of obviously not not knowing her you know having access to you know her her uh, 
you know, personal letters and things. I used her autobiography, her self-published, or her not, uh, not self-published, the book's called Self-Portrait, but she published a, an autobiography in the late 70s mm-hmm. that gave some insights. I, it was interesting when I was reading, because I was it, it was making me um, very much think of um, how this book arrives in a moment where, where we are having a conversation about stardom and about uh, female... Um, you know, on what on the one side, victimization perhaps; on the other side, exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I'm thinking specifically mm-hmm. about the how blonde earlier this year, earlier mm-hmm. last year, sorry, um, kind of ignited a debate, um, which seemed personally to me, and I'm very aware now we're two guys discussing blonde mm-hmm. and female, mm-hmm. uh, um, but uh, it, it it struck me as being. Uh, it was like there was the the there was blonde really struck me as like a first wave of feminism movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it was all about the woman as a as a as a victim, and the criticism of it was from a lot of people who who quite rightly to some degree uh, were coming at it from you know we've had that first wave of feminism where we see the woman as victim and now we want to see the woman as. Um, as an agent and and in some ways empowered mm-hmm. um in a way those are both narratives and you can mm-hmm. you kind of have to you know lie as as i was reading your book i was just thinking how a life doesn't necessarily just slot into an easy narrative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I was trying to you know walk that line of not of, of taking a meta approach to the narratives that had been written about Gene Tierney and trying not to write my own narrative on top of that. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I mean the I finished the book well before I knew about the the blonde. Well, the blonde movie that's been. Um, that was a movie that was they were trying to get off the ground for a long time, but I, I had no idea that the book would come out right before um, Blondes. Um, otherwise, I might have mentioned something about that in the in the conclusion because I think it does bring up all sorts of interesting things for, um, you know, the way that star images are constructed and continue to be reconstructed long after the life of the star. And Blonde is a perfect example of that with with Marilyn Monroe. I mean, I, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about what you thought of the film. I have not read the the Joyce Carol Oates novel that that the movie's based on, um, but I had a lot of problems with the the movie, um, and it, it wasn't so. It wasn't because I wanted to see, you know, Marilyn Monroe, the the like, you know, unproblematically empowered star, because in some ways she wasn't empowered working in the Hollywood studio system of the of the 1950s. I mean, there were all sorts of limitations on stars like Marilyn Monroe. But um, I, I found it to be a, a film that was just kind of reveling in the, the spectacle of her struggles rather than providing any kind of insights into the conditions under which those struggles were taking place. Um, and that might have been the film that I personally would have wanted to see. Um, uh, and that's a problem with biographies, I think, um, because biographies are written in a way that, you know, you're trying to give a narrative to a life. And I know Blonde is not, strictly speaking, a, a biography. It's a, you know, sort of creative interpretation inspired by Marilyn Monroe, but it's 
the the film anyway is is doing some of the similar things that that biographies do and i i feel like just rendering her uh into this kind of punching bag i i, I didn't think um was productive but i'm curious did what did if you don't mind me asking did did you feel similarly or did you no i don't i don't mind you asking at all um in, it's uh uh it, it's it's with a sense of trepidation that I that I offer, <laughs> offer my uh, just just it's it's just social media has rendered this kind of conversation sometimes a little bit. Um, but anyway, this is what I think. I thought it were it works as a sort of compulsion style horror movie, oh. um, in which uh, you know she is literally sort of haunted by uh, uh, her own creation you know the, the, mm -hmm. the Marilyn Monroe becomes the um sort of Frankenstein's monster to her mm. uh Norma Jean um mm -hmm. and I, I find it incredibly sort of powerful and immersive and and just just the way it looked the way it felt but I at the same time I'm very aware that I would get angry with a film that maybe didn't have so much panache, um, being taking so many liberties with with fact, and mm -hmm. I know, I know it's Joyce Carol Oates wrote the novel as a novel and was very mm -hmm. distinct about that. And I thought Andrew Dominic's argument that he didn't put a disclaimer at the front of the film as oh well, you know, people people should understand. And I thought I thought he would have saved himself a lot of trouble if he'd just done that. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I, I, it would just like look. It's an imagining. If it's an imagining, then fine. Mm -hmm. And to tell you, I mean, a lot of the um, the trouble that people have with the with the whole um, with blonde in particular, I I agree. I think it's a problem with Hollywood biopics in general mm -hmm. that there's this very simplistic Freudian. You know, mm -hmm. Freud, yep. in terms of psychoanalysis, is kind of the dodo now. He's, you know, he's not, he's, he's, he's considered a better literary critic than he is a psychiatrist. <laughs> I, I don't mean that facetiously. I mean, he really, you know, he he writes very well on Hamlet, and he, he mm -hmm. and, and he's applying kind of like those sort of observations to a topography of the mind, which. Is, is based on seeing the world from above the clouds. You know, you don't see, mm -hmm. you can't, I can't see where the mountains are because I can't see brain activity. And now we can, you know, it, mm -hmm. it's not his fault. But from Orson Welles and uh, Rosebud on, we've had this model of um, human life in Hollywood, which is all we need to do is find the rosebud, and as, mm -hmm. and it's always one thing, and it's always childhood, and it's always to do with a mum, mm -hmm. and it, and it's just kind of so that in itself is just such a restrictive and dull way of looking at. Um, sorry, it's a very long answer. No, I think that's really well said. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's that's really interesting. I. Um, yeah, I had a, a problem with that kind of Freudian, um, the, the, the way it purports to kind of explain certain things in, in um, sort of traditional Freudian terms, especially at the beginning with her childhood. And I also had a problem with, um, and I, I realized this is sort of extra textual information, but, you know, I, I, my reaction to the film was somewhat 
visceral, you know, after I, I watched it and I'd heard, you know, about the controversies and everything, but I, the, the things about the film that put me off, put me off in, in a strong enough way that I was just curious to read more about the film, which is not always what happens when I don't love a film, you know, sometimes I'll just be like, oh, you know, that's done. Um, but I was intrigued by just the, you know, what Andrew Dominic was thinking when he made the, the film. I love, um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is um, a film he made. Um, I think is like two films earlier than than Blonde, and I think that's a fascinating film about celebrity and myth making. So I, I was in some ways kind of rooting for the film um, based on on um, Jesse James, but then hearing him talk about Marilyn Monroe in such dismissive terms, you know, there's a famous, I guess now kind of infamous interview that was circulating on social media where he was talking about, oh, well, you know, her films are terrible. And I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but you know, nobody cares about gentlemen prefer blondes and um, uh, whether the film is directly based on Marilyn Monroe as, as a straightforward biopic or just kind of inspired by Marilyn Monroe. It, it, that seemed like a bad faith premise to me um, to, to make a film about somebody that he didn't even care about um, and was more interested in just this Freudian narrative that it sounds like he identified with, um, but wasn't really concerned about whether or not that was a an adequate um, uh, exploration of, of Monroe. Yeah, absolutely. No, I know the the interview which you he 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 did himself no favors throughout. The whole <laughs> absolutely no favors at all. And the yeah, I mean that it just baffles me that he spent something like twenty years um, bringing that to the screen. Mm -hmm. Why would you dedicate so such a long period, so much of your own capital as well? Mm -hmm. Because you know directors don't get a chance to make films frequently so mm -hmm. why would you expend so much that on someone that you don't think had you know the the root of their talent wasn't wasn't even there and exactly just for the record, he's totally wrong you know Marilyn yeah Monroe yeah yeah is a hugely talented actress you know absolutely yeah, yeah. And, and, the, and the oh i'm sorry go ahead no, no, I was just from from what was it all about Eve? She turns up in a small role in yeah. All About Eve, and you, she just immediately burns a hole in the screen, and it's amazing, yep. you know. Yeah, and and going going back to noir, my favorite of her films, favorite of her performances, at least if if I were asked that question right at this moment, I would say Don't Bother to Knock, which was her first, uh, not her first film, but her first starring role in, in which she's you know the lead, um, and it really shows that she had a range beyond the the kind of 50s sex comedies. And, and, you know, I think she's fantastic in Some Like It Hot and um, Gentlemen for Blondes and Seven Year Itch. But um, the, the well, pace of the she... Agra, which is, you know, which is her playing a much more straightforwardly noirish villain, really, you know. Oh, Niagara is that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think she did have a range that... Um, that still in some ways hasn't been fully uh, appreciated because I think when people talk about her films, they talk about so the same couple of films over and over again. But Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is the, the very film that Dominic cites, um, is like a perfect example of how untrue that statement is because that's such a, a, a for the time, like a, a pretty subversive performance. Mm. Oh, abso yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Just like, man, you have you? <laughs> you know, which does give credence to that 
bad faith reading of the film that he's just seen certain visual images that he wants to reproduce and he wants to give them a sort of punkish mm-hmm. glaring sort of effect and i do get that i mm-hmm. i just there is i just felt there was something in it that that affected me as i was watching it I'm not mm-hmm. sure if it had anything to do with Marilyn Monroe. And I know um, a previous guest, Sam Wasson, got mm-hmm. very agitated and angry and kind of, I totally get that, totally rightfully angry uh, in terms of the rape scene with mm-hmm. uh, Studio Head because his, mm-hmm. as far as he was concerned, as well as, you know, the various, you know, the just the whole idea of how we depict rape these days, but also he was like, that never happened. That's actionable. You know, that's a, that's a lie. That's not true. That's Mm -hmm. totally, you know, um, Mm -hmm. uh, and he saw it as sort of a corrosive view of Hollywood as well, that Hollywood Mm -hmm. is this place where this is a, you know, this happens everywhere. And yet in the post Weinstein world, Mm -hmm. that's all too credible. But at the same time, if everybody's doing it, is any, Hi, I'm DeLon Grant. And I'm Francesca Ramsey, and together we host the podcast, Let Me Fix It. Each week, we explore something from the past, and then we pitch how to fix it for today. But forget about the past. Let's talk about the new show of the moment. DeLon, did you get a chance to watch the new Queenie trailer I sent you? How dare you send me this amazing (laughs) show that took me back to every messy breakup I've ever had. Thank God I had you through my 20s. Now, you could not pay me to go back and relive those days, but thankfully, we will be living as Queenie navigates her messy 20s. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Anybody particularly bad if it's mm-hmm. so, you, did you know, if it's so universal, whereas mm-hmm. that idea that it's universal actually kind of provides cover for the individuals who are, who are doing right. this. Right, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that um, the studio head in that scene is, is Daryl Zanuck, um, mm-hmm. who is um, that, you know, Monroe, like, like Gene Tierney also worked for Fox. And so there's an interesting kind of connection there in some ways with the, you know, Fox's continued interest in a, a certain kind of so-called sex symbol. Um, uh, and Zanuck was, was famous for um these uh you know I, I guess they call it casting couch there's some kind mm-hmm. of um euphemism for for um for xanax reputation which at the time i think was um you know he was sort of seen as like a, a a ladies man and you know um i think that is also kind of covering up the uh the insidiousness of what was going on behind his um office doors. Um, I don't know, you know, personally, I haven't done enough research on Marilyn Monroe to know about the nature of, of his relationship with Monroe, but yeah, I, I mean, that scene, it, it did feel uh, gratuitous to me, um, uh, it, you know, early on in the, in the film. Um, and, you know, I mean, especially because, you know, we know 
that this did go on and does go on. I wasn't sure why they needed to to just sort of have yet another, I guess at that point, the film is sort of one of the first of many scenes of Monroe being, you know, graphically degraded. Mm, mm, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, to bringing it back to Tierney and 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 your your book, we because we don't want to we don't want to wander too <laughs> too long in the in in the swamp of, uh, <laughs> of Andrew Dominic's imagination. And I I have a lot of admiration for the man. I love his other films, and uh, you know I've uh, I've interviewed him in the past, and he's a fascinating. Oh wow! Uh, he is a you know he 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 is a he's a man from a certain era i think with a certain um mindset and uh and he's not that interview was a real showcase of someone not really listening you know not really exactly you know? exactly yeah i think there was a defense to be made of the film but it did require some okay i see what you mean but you know, that it, it was like, no, I don't see what you mean at all. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but but returning to Tierney and her and her status, because what's interesting, I, I found, well, there were two two aspects that I, I'd, I'd like to sort of get get you to to expand on a little bit for our listeners. Sure. One is the the way she, that she sort of goes from playing ethnic roles mm-hmm. uh, a sort of oriental nature and constructed and then has to sort of somehow get out of that because it's a, mm. a a little bit of a, a cul-de-sac mm-hmm. and and the other is how then that goes into the the second world war and her changing into this sort of um uh propaganda i don't think well well okay propaganda role of of helping the war effort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I was sort of drawing uh, from Edward Said uh, and his theory of of what he calls Orientalism, which is this kind of Western fascination with um, the East in this very homogenized way. And so on the one hand, there's this attraction to what seems like um, an, a quote unquote exotic culture. And then at the same time, kind of embedded with that, there's this sort of fear of that or anxiety over it and the anxiety and the fear of the um, the racial otherness also motivates the kind of attraction to it. And so that gets kind of built up into um, or built into a certain kind of star image that uh, you know, still still exists in popular culture, but was was prevalent in um, the 1920s and 1930s of the quote unquote orientalist exotic. Um, and you know, f- the initial attempts to build up tyranny as a sex symbol were in these terms. Um, and she was in um, Joseph von Sternberg's The Shanghai Gesture. Um, she was in a movie called Sundown, um, in which she actually appeared in the same costume in that film um, on the cover of Life magazine in 1941, which was like a, a sort of big moment for announcing her as um, a new star and, um, you know, a, a, a star who represented certain um, ideas about her attitudes towards feminine beauty. And then... Um, it, you know, when um, the war, th- those those films were not well received by by critics. And I, I don't know that the um, negative reception 
would reflect the way that those movies would be negatively received now. You know, I think now the, the um, negative reception would call attention to the the racist underpinnings of that star image. I think at the time people just saw it as like melodramatic claptrap. Um, so Fox needed to kind of reinvent her because um, that that wasn't quite, you know, working. Um, and then the... Um, uh, with the uh, United States intervention in World War II, um, star images were very much, female star images in particular were very much like the, the all-American girl next door, um, the the sort of Betty Grable pinup. And Betty Grable was Fox's like pinup queen in the, in the 1940s, blonde, blue-eyed, fair-skinned, um, the, the sort of image that would represent what the American troops were fighting for, um, the woman back home who was waiting for them, and they could pin literally pin up this picture of this woman on their barracks walls. So Fox had an opportunity to, to reinvent tyranny in terms that were compatible with the war effort, but it's just a kind of reframing of her sexuality rather than representing a kind of sexual otherness in racialized terms it's a kind of um sexual familiarity where she's the 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 girl next door she's the the, the pinup and so in the early 1940s uh there's a film 1942 the same year that um the united states enters the war called rings on her fingers where she's very much a, a you know a kind of um all American type, you know, she's like a working class girl from Brooklyn, you know, and um, there are a, at least one scene where she appears in a bathing suit. And that became part of the, the promotional campaign for that film of, you know, tyranny in these swimsuit poses and things like that. And so that, I think, informed the, the trajectory of her career over the next few years as, you know, um, uh, a, a woman who aligned with the ideals of the home front and um, patriotism, somebody who was directly contributing to the war effort as she was back home selling war bonds, for example, appearing at the Hollywood canteen. And so she, you know, stars in a couple of war movies and Thunderbirds. She's um, that that film, I think, you know, would qualify as a, a propaganda film. Um, and mm -hmm. Uh, she's she's very much kind of playing that type. And so it was a way of, you know, not exactly changing her star image, but adapting the the sex symbol from the uh, the exotic other to the the um, the American pinup that uh, who personified certain ideas about the home front at that time. And, and when she comes out of there and, and she's it's in the post-war situation. A, mm. a lot of people view, and I think you you make this clear in, in the book as well, that sort of film noir and the femme fatale is a kind of reaction to that changing image mm -hmm. of the woman. It's sort of like we've had the woman in the workforce, we, mm -hmm. men have been away fighting wars. Do we do we trust the women have, have mm. been, you know, suddenly there's gaps and secrets and... Um, mm -hmm. We, we have to take things on face value or not. Um, and she sort of slips into that uh, role as well as the, mm -hmm. as, as the femme fatale. Exactly. And it's interesting that so many people think of her as, as a femme fatale via Laura. Um, uh, but much like the movie Gilda, I just taught Gilda in my film noir class. So that's kind of on my on my mind. Um, mm -hmm. You know, both Laura and Gilda are about women who are presumed to be 
femmes fatales, um, but who actually aren't. Um, you know, Laura and Gilda are actually, you know, women who are being manipulated by the the men around them who are kind of casting them in these roles as opposed to being the the manipulator or the the sort of siren seducer. Um, but then, you know, after World War II, Jean Tierney does play sort of a, a bona fide femme fatale in um, a movie called The Razor's Edge, which is um, not a film noir, but a, a kind of post-war male melodrama um, about um, a, 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 vet, a veteran in the film. It's a World War I veteran played by Tyrone Power, but it comes out right after World War II, so it kind of has that, that post-war resonance. Um, and she is playing in that film, you know, a, a kind of straightforward, bad, you know, quote unquote, bad woman. Um, but an interesting film that comes out right at the, around the same time is Leave Her to Heaven, which other than Laura is probably her most famous and, and well-regarded uh, film uh, now. Uh, and it was a huge hit in 1945. And, you know, that film is famous for all the the bad stuff that she does that she does in the in the movie uh most um egregiously being she uh allows her uh, brother-in-law to drown while purporting to teach him how to swim um but her, her brother-in-law who is a child who's a, who's a child yeah exactly um uh you know he's like a, a preteen um, and uh, he, he has a polio and she's uh, supposedly trying to, you know, help him, um, you know, walk again and, and swim and so forth. And, and then, you know, there's this famous scene where he where he drowns and she kind of sits there allowing that to happen. And, you know, I, I'm in no way defending the uh, actions of the Gene Tierney character in that film. Um, Ellen Barrett does lots of, you know, that that scene in particular is is. Um, you know, not uh, not something that I, I am endorsing or excusing or uh, anything like that. But I do think that film gives us a kind of like double reading of Ellen, the, the character that Gene Tierney plays. And I think, you know, on the one hand, you could read it as another uh, bad woman like uh, the character she plays, Isabel, in um, The Razor's Edge. But unlike The Razor's Edge, there are there's a kind of context that the film gives her for um for what she's doing that um i think would would challenge the view of her just being kind of bad for badness's sake i mean she's clearly um disturbed in the film and um there's a way that her uh disturbed state and also the disturbances that she creates in the film sort of bring to light um the uh, the sort of boys club world that she's thrust into as um, Cornel Wilde's new wife, where, you know, he completely ignores her in his uh, sort of, um, you know, cabin in the woods, which looks like something out of, you know, an old boy's life magazine. He's perfectly content to just hang out with his younger brother and the, the groundskeeper. And, um, you know, you, you I don't want to say you're sympathetic to Ellen, um, but there's a way that Ellen becomes the most interesting, you know, powerful, dynamic character in that film. So she she is the center of the film. She's not just there as a foil for the, the male protagonist like she is in The Razor's Edge, where her badness is set up to show how fundamentally good the male hero is. Whereas in in the in uh, Leave Her to Heaven, um her her uh i would i would call it you know more um disruptiveness than than badness um 
exposes those kind of contradictions and those tensions in the immediate post-war era of, you know, rechanneling the uh, woman in the public labor force back into the home and then also kind of taking away some of the responsibilities that, um, you know, she would be expected to perform in the home because, you know, she doesn't she doesn't really have an opportunity to do anything in in um, Cornell Wilde's, uh, you know, cabin in the woods. And so she's kind of just left to, you know, to to go to go mad under these under these conditions or rather it, it exacerbates, you know, um, the the sort of psychological state that she was already in. I, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm I'm prone to a little bit more of a wicked reading of that film. In yeah, I, I think I think in your book you make a very good point about you know it, the her husband being so excited that the brother is in the next room banging on the wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, brother! You know, God Almighty! <laughs> you know, I thought we were going to actually get down to doing something here. You know, <laughs> fishing with this guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm a babysitter now. And I think the film itself sort of does that in that it there are there are a lot of films from this era which it's difficult to read because you're looking back. So so you're mm-hmm. not necessarily you're looking at some things with a sort of, oh, this is so blue velvet and this is so right, right, right. Yeah. Fences and <laughs> yeah. and all the rest of it. And you're supposed to be looking for the the, the severed ear, you know, you're supposed to right. be looking for the the, the 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 worms in the undergrowth mm-hmm. uh so that could be just my perspective but on a, on the other hand it just seems like it's so um that result that relationship is portrayed in such a sort of you know tv fashion if you like a sort of yeah. you know straight out of an advertising oh absolutely from life magazine or something yeah and then the look of the film the the look of her see for me um tierney's image and this is just personally to to me the Mm -hmm. one that is burned into my head is that picture of her on that lake with those colors when she's in the white robe and the and the sunglasses exactly yeah Mm-hmm. Even more so than the portrait, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that just might be an accident of in what order I saw the films, or, mm-hmm. or not necessarily. Um, yeah, when I saw them, or, or, or what, or whatnot. But it, I, I, it was. It's a really interesting film. That I really, I love that film. I love her performance. Mm-hmm. I think it's her greatest performance. Um, right. I, I I love that film too. I mean, you know, people always ask me, what's your favorite Gene Tierney film? And, you know, I always want to say, well, the, the film I would start with is probably Laura because, um, you know, it's, it is the, the, the iconic role. It's, it's um, kind of her signature role, but I think her best performance um, is in Lever to Heaven because it's a much more complicated character. Mm-hmm. And um I, I also, you know, really love The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, which came out a few years later. Um, uh, and and so if I had to pick a favorite, it'd be probably one of those three. But in terms of of the performance that I think is the most compelling, I, I think it's got to be Lever to Heaven. And yeah, I also, as you know, somebody who grew up, um, you know, aware of that kind of um, double reading of of middle seemingly beautiful middle class life, right? The the blue velvet Twin Peaks kind of thing. Um, I was sort of predisposed to look for that in Lever to Heaven, um, and I do think it's a kind of like proto Lynchian melodrama in a way. Um, but um, 
Yeah, I, I, I think that it, you know, the, the people that made the film, I'm not sure what they intended, you know, I'm not sure what John Stahl or Zanuck intended with the film and um, much like Laura, there are these kind of competing conceptions of Ellen, the character. And I, I tried to kind of reconstruct that in the book, but one of the kind of common themes in all of those different attitudes towards her is whether they realize it or not, they're, I don't want to say siding with Ellen, but there's, there's a, a kind of fascination with Ellen that all of the people who made that film and, and Tierney herself was very proud of that role and really yeah. admired the, the film. Um, that suggests, yeah, there's something wrong with this, um, yeah, Life Magazine, Boy's Life, uh, <laughs> picture-perfect picture view of, um, of the vacation home. And Tierney's uh, perverse, disruptive presence, I think, just makes that sort of luridly apparent. <laughs> Yeah, and I, you know, it's the it's like the morality of of beauty as well because it's yeah. like okay, you know, she did a really bad, bad, bad thing, but she's so beautiful. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, like, it's like the halo effect, you know. You yeah. no matter what a beautiful person does, you're willing to give them a much. You're cutting them much more slack, and I, I even think that the title. <laughs> yeah, like, right. Exactly that. It's like, nah, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be the one to throw the first stone. Well, and it explains why, because if you were to summarize that movie to somebody who had no context for it, they might think like, why on earth would Cornel Wilde's character stay with her? How did he not know that she had done this? And mm -hmm. when you watch the movie, you know, you see how he's kind of mesmerized by her, but she has this mesmerizing effect on the viewer, you know, regardless of who the viewer is, I think like there, there's the the immediate introduction of her on the train with the with the green eyes, the sort of blue green eyes that match the color of the interior of the train car. It's almost like she's possessed the whole world of the film, whether it's the train car or her costumes are always like, you know, coordinated with with her eye color, um, the the back of the moon, you know, greenery. Um, and then finally, after, you know, not to spoil it uh, for, but, you know, the movie's movie's pretty old at this point. I think we can kind of spoil the ending. The, uh, after her death in the courtroom scene, um, it seems like she's still somehow from beyond the grave, you know, uh, controlling the environment that the courtroom has that same kind of, um, uh, you know, um, not, not emerald green, but a... Uh, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it looks like the, the, the trees in back of the moon, it looks like the, the train car, it looks like her eyes. Um, so it's hard to read that, you know, seemingly happy ending as a totally happy ending. It's like Ellen is still a force to be reckoned with whether she's, you know, um, alive or not. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that absolutely, I, I could really, I could talk all day about this one. It's a, a really interesting uh, book, and it's a really interesting um, actress who I think deserves a lot more um, actress actor, I should say, um, uh, uh, deserves a lot more uh, recognition, I think. Um, but I do have to, uh, we do have to close off this conversation. Okay. So I, I'm going to ask you my, my final question, which is um, recommended film book slash books. Okay. So um, yeah, I, I, uh, I can recommend three quickly off the top of my head um, that I read in the last year, all 
um, from 2022. Um, for people who are interested in star studies monographs, like my book on Gene Tierney, which you know is not a biography, but a, a kind of historical and, and um, critical study of like how a star image operates or how a performance creates meaning, I would recommend James Nairmore's Some Versions of Cary Grant, published by Oxford University mm -hmm. Press. Um, which is a beautifully written study of Cary Grant's performances. It's more of a, a, an acting study than a, a star study, but you know it, it offers a view of Cary Grant that is much more multifaceted than um, the, the typical view of Cary Grant just playing Cary Grant. Like he's always playing that same sort of charming debonair figure. Here, Nairmore looks at him in screwball comedies and the darker films with Hitchcock and his Cockney roles. Um, and, and, you know, uh, makes a makes a really persuasive case for just what a nuanced actor he was beyond being such a charming personality. Um, so that would be one. Another one is called Immortal Films by Barbara Klinger, um, which is published by University of California Press. Um, the subtitle is Casablanca and the Afterlife of a Hollywood Classic. So it's not so much a production history of Casablanca. And there's been a lot of work that has done that. It's a it's an analysis of how Casablanca became a classic in um, the aftermarket through television broadcasts, radio adaptations, um, home video releases, um, the, the Humphrey Bogart cult, um, and how you know canons are shaped by these external forces, these agents in the aftermarket that give a film a life beyond its um, uh, premiere, you know, its initial premiere. And so that's a fascinating film, a fascinating book just about, I mean, it's about Casablanca, but also just about how films develop their reputations. And then the last book I would recommend is from the BFI Filmed Classics series that Bloomsbury publishes. And it's um, the volume on Sunset Boulevard by Steve Cohan. And um, it's in some ways a kind of mini sequel to his book, Hollywood by Hollywood, which is all about movies that uh, depict movie making. And Sunset Boulevard is probably the most famous, maybe alongside Singing in the Rain, the most famous example of that genre. And so it's a kind of deep dive into that one film in this in this concentrated way through through this lens of of Hollywood's mystique of of itself. Mm. Oh, those all sound amazing. Those all sound great. I was thinking about Cary Grant and um uh uh, oh, there was something. Oh, it's it's gone out of my head now. I was thinking something about Cary Grant, but it, uh, that, that's that's annoying. Oh well, never mind. Well, <laughs> it, luckily, I was also thinking something about uh, Casablanca as well, so I can go straight on to that. <laughs> the, idea that um, the idea that in certain ages you get a um, like a classic which stands for like an art form, and Casablanca yes. kind of stands for movies in and I was thinking about very recently I, I was listening to all of Beethoven's symphonies and I was thinking like when I was growing up um his fifth symphony you know dum, 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 mm -hmm. was the was like the, the the immediate sort of signifier of classical music yes if you said classical music to someone or if there was a comedy scene in which someone had to do castle that was the like the shorthand to mean all classical music yeah 
And I sort of like, but but nowadays I was thinking, I wonder if that's still the case with Beethoven. I wonder if that, I wonder if that's the piece of music that everybody recognizes. Cause I've got a feeling it isn't, you know, I've got a feeling it's just not that present in our culture as it was like 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, I also would think of that as like the, the stand in or like the signifier of classical music, but I, I, I'd be curious, you know, what my students would say, you know, like if Gen Z has that same sense of, of, um, classical musicness when they hear, when they hear that, I mean, and I think that's exactly what, um, the book on Casablanca is, is about is, is how Casablanca, came to represent or or um symbolize um classic cinema broadly you know like that's the sort of go-to example whenever you have those clip shows those like hollywood hit parade afi academy award montages you can bet that casablanca is going to be there uh, prominently and it's it's probably going to be the scene at the airport at the end the you know here's looking at you kid scene um or maybe the scene in in the bar when Humphrey Bogart, um, you know, is asking Sam to to play as time goes by, um, and so the the book is all about that uh, process of cementing Casablanca in our uh, cultural imaginary. But it's it's through these um, uh, post it's through its post premiere circulation, and I think with with Beethoven, and I don't know if this is sort of exposing my ignorance of like high art. Um, but I, uh, I, I sort of learned about classical music from watching Warner Brothers cartoons as a kid, you know? And so I think of, I, I probably learned a lot about, you know, uh, classic films and, and classical music and, and, you know, the great works of literature from the Simpsons and Looney Tunes, you know, because that's where that stuff got uh, a sense of visibility for a certain generation. And, and you know, when you're um, thinking about this at a certain age, um, you know, those merry Absolutely. melodies. I think yeah. my first ever like classical album I bought as a kid was called Voyager. And it was a selection of classical music as heard in commercials. Oh, wow. And That's it was like, you know, old spice advert, Karloff and, <laughs> you know, uh, and yeah, but I, I loved it. I, I, that, yeah. that it had a familiarity to it, and then I. But you could hear the whole piece of music, so it was. I've remembered my Cary Grant thing because you mentioned yeah. the AFI, and that was that was what made me think of it. When the AFI were going to give their first lifetime achievement award, Cary Grant was the uh, proposed recipient, and George Stevens Jr., who was the head of the AFI. Uh, phoned Cary Grant and said, "We're going to give you this award," and. And he said, well, what does it mean? Because it was the very first one. So he didn't, you know, what, what does it entail? And he said, well, we'll have this big evening. We'll have all the stars. We'll have all these people that you invite. And they'll give little speeches. And we'll play some clips. And the whole thing will be broadcast on television. And he, and he, and Cary Grant went, oh, I'm very flattered. Very nice. Thank you very much. But no. And it was like, well, well why? It's a huge honor. It's going to, you're going to be the very first. And he said, yeah, but Cary Grant doesn't do television. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how he talked about himself kind of in the third person that way. My favorite, one of my favorite quotes about like movie stardom in general is that line when Cary Grant said, um, I think in an interview, everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Even I want to be Cary Grant. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, because he was, of course, he was Archie Leach, wasn't he? Exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. And so at some point, like, either he he did become Cary Grant or Cary Grant became him. And it's just an interesting kind of meta, going back to this idea of, of the meta levels of a star image. I mean, he's a fascinating case of that. Mm. So did you see, by the way, the documentary they did uh, quite recently? About Cary Grant? Grant? Yeah. Yeah, I have not seen it yet, actually. I uh, I think it's an HBO documentary, and I didn't have HBO at the time when it came out, but um, I do now. So it's on my list of movies to kind of uh, backtrack and and catch up on. But it, it sounded really interesting. Mm, I'm, I'm going to watch tonight uh, on my watch list is a film, one of those gaps I've never seen, uh, Fatal Attraction. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll be curious what you think of that, because that has a I haven't seen it in a long time. It's probably been, uh, I don't know, at least 10 years since I've seen it. But that had an interesting reception. It's almost like a, a kind of inkblot test where some people really going back to Lever to Heaven, some people really saw it as like um, a revenge movie about um uh, you know, men like Michael Douglas, the one night stand, okay, I'm never going to see you again. And Glenn Close's character then stalks him and his family. So they saw Michael Douglas as the villain. Um, and then other people saw it as this uh, misogynistic backlash against um, uh, the feminist movements of, of the 1980s, where we have uh, independent single career woman who is presented as quote unquote hysterical. So it's, it's an interesting, you know, um, movie to show people and say, okay, you know, who, who's the real villain in this, in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've, I've posed that question to students and, and they, they have a a mixed reaction. I, I have never taught the film, but I've shown sort of clips from it. And I once had an older student who remembered seeing it when it came out and she said, yeah, I would go to parties and people would be like, what are you talking about? Like Michael Douglas is totally the bad guy in that. I mean, I know from, uh, I read a book called, um, is that a gun in your pocket about female, uh, executives and and the sort of powerful people in Hollywood uh the the executives the producers the and um that film was really developed by quite a powerful backroom team of women oh Uh, really directed by Adrian Lyne but I think the script is partly written by a woman if not entirely and the producer was a woman and there was a real thing that um, they were testing the movie and it was much, much more even handed and it wasn't working. And they took out the sympathy parts wow. and made her into more of a villain. So okay. there was a real sense of like, oh, we've got a huge hit, but but we've got a huge hit with a film we didn't actually start, <laughs> start off making, you know. Um, wow, that is super interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's Rachel uh, Abramovitz is the the writer of the book. Um, okay. Uh, for, former guest of the of the podcast. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so go back just to advertise as many episodes as possible. George Stevens Jr., former guest of the podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. And Andrew Dominic as well. Since you said that you interviewed him, or was that in a different context? Ah, uh, that was in a different context. Context, okay. I'm afraid. He hasn't ri- written a book, so he doesn't get on. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. Very strict. Very, very strict. <laughs> it's like knocking on the door all the time. Andrew, go away <laughs> and come back. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, well, Will, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Likewise. It's always great. Um, 
always great to know, to talk to someone who who who's so 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 well versed and such an expert in his stuff. Um, uh, a, a, a brilliant a brilliant topic as well, I think. Oh, well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the compliment. And this was a, a real pleasure to do. So thank you for having me on the show and um, and spreading the word about, about the book. Yeah, hopefully we'll have you on for the next one as well. I'd love to come back anytime you want to have me. <laughs> that was my conversation with will uh, i hope you enjoyed it i certainly did we had a great talk about a lot of different things um i will be back next week with uh, a really good episode uh, a totally different episode a totally different um subject we're going from gene tierney to godzilla so uh if you like all your monsters um huge and particularly destructive and japanese then uh, i'm sure you'll enjoy the next episode until then please take care powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.